match fixing. Straightforward match fixing. I'll give you some money, you lose the match. This is my guest, historian John Foote. We're in Italy. It's 1980 and the scandal has just broken. And one of the people involved in that scandal is Paolo Rossi. Paolo Rossi is one of Italy's best players. One of football's baby-faced assassins. Butter wouldn't melt in his mouth. And he gets banned for three years. So the Italian Football Federation, in a classic bureaucratic manoeuvre, manages to get the ban lifted so he can play at the 1982 World Cup in Spain. Even then, the team is a complete mess. No one is expecting them to win anything. Rossi is out of shape. He's out of form. The media are sceptical that he should even be included. And then the first three games really seem to prove their point. They're absolutely terrible. One writer described him as the ghost of Paolo Rossi. A draw with Poland and another with Peru. Surely they would do better against the ranked outsiders, Cameroon. Three draws allows them to creep through to the next round. Then, in the quarterfinals, in one of the World Cup's greatest matches, Italy beat Brazil 3-2, and it's Paolo Rossi with a hat-trick. Paolo Rossi has done it! Paolo Rossi! Paolo Rossi was there again! Unbelievable! Suddenly, Paolo Rossi starts scoring everything that comes near him. Two more goals against Poland in the semis and one in the final against West Germany. Nobody expects him to the win. They win. Six goals in three games. Paolo Rossi, tournament leading scorer. Italy, champions of the world again, thanks to his goals. I'm David Goldblatt and this is Game of Our Lives. Paolo Rossi, more popular than spaghetti. And that was 1982, the third victory in the World Cup for Italy, a momentous national occasion, a story of redemption, even of resurrection. It's a story that works perfectly from the point of view of national identity. Italian football and Italian politics have been closely linked for the last 70 years. Back in the 1920s and 1930s, Mussolini and his fascist regime embraced the game and used it as a political tool. Before the game commences, the great Italian crowd roars a welcome to Signor Mussolini. In the 1980s and 1990s, Silvio Berlusconi reinvented Italian football and used it as a platform to launch his extraordinary political career. His party is named after a chant, Forza Italia. Viva l'Italia, viva Forza Italia! Forza Italia! So where are we in 2018? For the first time in 60 years, Italy's football team have failed to qualify for the World Cup. It's a deep humiliation. It's the darkest hour in the history of Italian sports. That is the sound of Italy failing to qualify for this summer's World Cup, the first time since 1958. In the sports press, in the political press, it's been described as a national tragedy, a cataclysm. So where does this moment fit into the longer narrative of Italian football and politics? Where does it rank amongst the other triumphs and disasters of the past? Does it really matter at all in contemporary Italy? Here to explain this and take us through Italy's amazing football history is one of the best people for the job and he's the man who told our story earlier, Professor John Foote. 
He's Professor of Modern Italian History at the University of Bristol and author of Calcio, A History of Italian Football, which for my money is the best book on the subject in the English language. I started by asking him why the World Cup has meant so much to Italians over the years. They've won it four times. They've won it in 1934, 1938, 82 and 2006. Let's go back first of all to 34 and 38. Why do those World Cups, what did they mean at the time to Italy? And what sense of Italianness can we can we gain from looking at them? So Italian fascism, which took power in the 20s, understood very early on that football was a place to mobilise Italians as Italians. And they were probably the first regime in the world, I think, to understand that. And what they did was invest massively in the sport. They built hundreds of stadiums, they built up technical expertise, they built up the local game and the national game, and they wanted to be the best in the world. Um, and that was a very clear aim. And so that in '34 they organised the World Cup in Italy, and they made sure they won it. Of course, there are dark stories of referees and fixing, nothing ever proved. But they built a team that was good enough not just to win in '34, but also to win the Olympics in '36 and the World Cup again in France in '38. So what they did was build a team that at that time made football into the national sport. Before that, it had been cycling. And then so it it's one football. thing to say, you know, we're the best, we're the world champions. But what kind of champions were they? What sort of Italians were being or what kind of Italy is being imagined through the victories of this football team? It's a warlike Italy. I mean, the, the, the teams of the 30s were managed by Vittorio Pozzo, who said football is a war and we're in the trenches. And it used kind of fascist language, extreme nationalist language. So this is us against them. And, you know, the whole fascist propaganda was us against them, Italy against everybody else, autarky, 10 million bayonets. So that was all being used in that way. And that, that identification was both as winners, but also as warlike, a warlike nation that would be everybody else on the pitch and transmit that into the next war whenever it came along. How was this received? I mean, within Italy, of course, this would have been received relatively unproblematically by 1934 with most of the opposition silenced or in prison. How were the Italians and this mode of playing and this representation of Italy treated outside? I mean, for example, at the 1938 World Cup. Well, famously, the Italian team was often booed by anti-fascists and not just anti-fascists, French anti-fascists, but Italian emigrant anti-fascists who of which there were many and in 38 the great fascist myth is that before one of the games the fascist salute was was being held by the Italian players and Pozzo said you hold that salute until the booing stops now whether this is true or not again it's one of those myths very powerful myth though and again it's this idea of the war being translated into into the football field and vice versa and a very strong Pozzo himself had been in the war and he said, we are the Arditi, we are the crack troops, we are the, the symbol for the whole nation. And I think that transmitted itself very much down into the way Italians saw the national team. They largely understood the game through radio, and radio was very tightly controlled by the regimes. They didn't, they didn't see the games, they heard them and read about them. 
Fast forward just a decade and it turns out that, you know, while Italy are pretty fantastic football warriors, actually as a military machine, it turns out not to be quite so good. Italy is in ruins 10 years later. The fascist legacy has been completely trashed. Italy has, in fact, changed sides during the war. What in the immediate period after the war does the Italian football team mean and and how do people feel about the 34 and 38 victories which are transparently victories for fascism it's a great question and it's 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 something actually not a lot of research has been done so do we count those world cups and of course on the one hand yes why would you not okay they're in the trophy cabinet we've got the two world cups we're the holders at the next World Cup, right? Bizarrely, in 19, after the war, the next World Cup, Italy, the holders. But that's a bit embarrassing, right? Because those are fascist World Cups. So Pozzo, for example, is marginalised and becomes a journalist and is really kicked out of the world of football. Um, he's a bit embarrassing, not so much purged, but kind of a little bit embarrassing, all a bit embarrassing. And so let's not talk about it. But yeah, they're still in the trophy cabinet. And um, it's the, Itali- the Italian team after the war is actually very weak, and Italians actually identify very much more with kind of local teams at that point because the national team really can't hack it in in the 40s and 50s and it really doesn't take off and indeed, into the, and indeed into the 1960s I mean the 66 World Cup is disastrous beaten by North Korea and they return home to an angry crowd they're kind of a source of almost embarrassment it seems at that point yeah I mean Italy itself uh, and this is mirrored in football takes a long time to recover from the ravages of war bombed you know famine economic disaster i mean it takes a long time and this clearly even the physical bodies of the footballers are ravaged by many of the footballers have been deported and had to came back weighing you know 40 kilos so it's kind of you can see it everywhere and it takes a long time to come out of that and yet of course italy managed you know to make it to the final in 1970 which is remembered in the popular football historical imagination as an almost exclusively Brazilian moment. But we forget actually Italy made the final, hold them to 1-1 into the second half and are playing pretty amazingly. How is that team and that moment in Italy's World Cup history read? By that time, the post-war generation are becoming the players. The, The boom of the 50s and 60s is coming into the sport and it's these players are becoming celebrities Gianni Rivera Sandra Mazzola that 1970 team which does amazingly well to get to the final and then gets eviscerated by the Brazil of Palais but I mean that team is the embryo of a team that will become a, a world beater again in the 70s 68 European championships they've already won they're going to be getting there towards 78 and 82 so it, it's Italy has, has got off its knees it's now a world beater it's making fiat cars it's making fridges it's making tvs and it's you know booming and that's being transmitted into its local teams the two milan teams and into the national team to what extent the 1970s i mean we've talked a lot about the boom in italy and of course the 1960s and 1970s economically are transformatory i mean it truly is an economic miracle but there is also another side to the 1970s the most intense social conflict inside italy this is the era of the hot autumn you know of both right-wing and left-wing organized violence of coups of conspiracy um to what extent does that set a context for um the 1982 world cup the 82 world cup is a time of political social and economic crisis. Uh, there's the, the years of lead, political violence, terrorism. A, a prime minister is is kidnapped and shot uh, in the middle of Rome, 
kept for 58 days. So there's extraordinary things going on and it's a dark period in Italian history. So 82, it's, it's extraordinary how the national team kind of, kind of rises above all of that. Left-wing people support it, right-wing people support it, non-political people support it. And there are these stories after the 82 victory of people getting flags out of their cupboards which still had the royal emblem on them and cutting out the middle and going out into the streets. So suddenly it was okay for a little brief period to get your flag out. And when you say national, is that from top to bottom? Because, you know, often one speaks of the nation in Italy and actually one's talking of the north or the south or some subsection. And I just wonder how widespread it was. Everywhere. I mean, it's worth pointing out, this is a unique moment in terms of the media because this is there's one TV channel you can watch this on we will never have that again, and we didn't really have it before. So the World Cup final in 82 gets a 95% share in Italy. This is a record. Yeah. It will never be beaten, right? Um, and I think that's wrong. I think it's 100%. I mean, the 5%, what are they watching? <laughs> Who are they? I mean, it's an extraordinary thing. So that's just that, that totalizing moment is an unrepeatable moment. And sitting in the stands watching this extraordinary moment, is of course the president of Italy, Sandro Pertini. And he too, I think, is part of the uh, the popular memory. As we know, if you watch the uh, the video of the era, there's cutting back and forth after every goal. We're watching the Italian president every time. And that's given 95% of the country is watching it. What an extraordinary moment. So can you tell us a bit about who was Pertini? Why? And why did he matter so much to Italians? So he was president of Italy, which is the the head of state um he was a little little man quite old by then and he'd been involved in all the major moments of italian history he was in the first world war he was an anti-fascist a very strong anti-fascist spent decades in prison he knew gramsci personally gramsci uh, he, was the imprisoned uh, leader of the italian communist party under mussolini and one of the great theorists of course of western marxism exactly uh, and he was involved in the resistance. It's said that he built the first barricade of the anti-fascist resistance. He kind of turns up like sort of Forrest Gump. Every single moment of history is there. And he goes to the final and he makes sure nobody else goes with him. He goes on the day of the final, doesn't go to any other games, and he's in the crowd and the camera just picks him out. And he is celebrating like all the Italians are. At that moment, Patini is associated deeply with that victory. And it's one of the great happy memories in Italian history. There aren't that many moments that everyone can agree on. And that's one of them. They all agree. That was great. 1982 is also a moment, it seems, where it sort of came out of nothing. But then it initiates an era of kind of Italian dominance and indeed excellence. It's not just dominance. It's like there's something very special and classy about Italian football over the next two decades. What, what brings that about? There's a number of things. One is technical excellence, which is has been there for a long time. Italians have training grounds. They have coaching courses way before anybody else. And they're doing that at a level of excellence that I think quite recently... And you see how many Italian managers there still are around. The others have caught up. Second thing is money. There's money in the Italian game. Big business is investing. Fiat have always been there, but a lot of big businessmen are putting money in. Um, and in 86, uh, a man called Silvio Berlusconi arrives and he buys AC Milan. 
he's a big kind of new kind of businessman he's he's tv he's private tv he's advertising you know he's consumerism and he he's coming into the game and he's going to transform it this is a showman this is a man who starts his business career as a crooner on a ship so what what element of that does berlusconi bring to the nature of the spectacle of italian football it's genius because he understands that football has to be watchable it has to be exciting and he imposes an attacking style on his teams which wasn't the natural style of italian football so he he doesn't just transform the package he transforms the tactics he brings in an unknown coach called arrigo sacchi who discards catanaccio and plays the pressing game which is now everybody plays but he that in and it's fantastic to watch and he says you have to play with two strikers we try and win every game so it's exciting football it's great to watch it's fast uh, and that he knows that has to be on TV. He knows he can sell advertising through that. And he knows he brings in the um, beautiful women around that. The He's in the stands. It's power, it's sex, it's glamour, all wrapped up. To what extent is he also dependent on the ultra movement in Italy for providing a kind of, at the time, almost unique atmosphere in global football? The stadiums are places... I mean, I went to Italy in 87 and I lived there 20 years and the stadiums were just mind-blowing i mean i've never seen anything like it i used to go to san siro you could walk in pay your 10 10 quid or something you just bought a ticket on the front of the there was no, no booking or anything you went in this huge concrete bowl and there were the ultra in one end and they were just putting up massive banners singing throwing things at the pitch deserting the match when they didn't like it it was crazy it was brilliant it was so exciting having come from quite scary hooligan type English games where the stadiums were all falling down this seemed like another world and it was you know you couldn't take your eyes you weren't watching the game you're watching the fans half the time so it's an extraordinary combination of seems three things Italy are really good at in the kind of 80s 90s you know you've got this uh, consumerist kind of showman that is Berlusconi um, you also have this kind of undercurrent of a, a pretty unregulated civil society I mean the ultras are a product you know, this is not just sort of spontaneous happiness. This is, you know, verging on organised criminality with the uh, say-so or at least the kind of, you know, benign neglect of the policing authorities and the clubs. And then you've got this other aspect of Italy, which is its sort of brilliance at focusing on very small bits of economic activity and getting really good at them. You know, Italy, you know, completely brilliant at high-end glassware or certain kind mm. of circuitry. And so too, producing footballers. So it's quite a kind of you know all of these things are making Italy successful in in the 90s but they're also bringing problems and I wonder whether those are crystallized in the 2006 World Cup which is on the one hand of course a victory but it's not a victory and it's not kind of celebrated in quite the way that the 1982 victory was what's changed and what's the story of 2006 2006 is another unexpected victory. Again, again, it has many similarities in some ways with 82. There's a corruption scandal, an even bigger one, which is kind of wiped out by the victory. 
Um, which is mogiopoly, which is systematic corruption of the refereeing agency transfer system masterminded from inside Juventus, but with this extraordinary network right across the game. Yeah, indeed, and uh, and a sort of system of power, more than a more sophisticated system of corruption than bribing or match fixing, but something where you create a system of power where you can't lose. And when you say a system of power, I mean how's that working? That's that um, someone like Moji had a whole range of incentives, disincentives, rather than just bribes. It's like what's going to happen to your career um, rather than just here's money to do something. Precisely. It's, it was about referees' careers. It was about selecting the right referee for the right games. It was about small things like bookings, you know, small little things that all gave you a little bit of an advantage, which we're already pretty good. We're Juve. I mean, we're pretty good anyway. Give ourselves these little advantages. We're never going to lose, okay? And so that all came tumbling down. And the same year as the World Cup, Italy won against the odds. And I think the interesting thing about that is not so much the victory, which was, which was, you know, I was there. The party afterwards was was a big party. It was by then Italy had become a, a country where many people were very didn't like Italy at all. There were separatist movements. There had been a lot of corruption scandals. There was a lot of anti-political populism around. And that that kind of it seemed like a blip more than a the 82 one is always remembered as a good memory 2006 and it fades away and i think the second thing that's happening there is that localism is starting to undermine the power of the national team being juventino being interista being milanista that's your identity that's the identity of 26 million italians who say they are fans half of italians and the national team it's because there's some Juve faint players. It's because there's some Milan players. And if we lose, it's because there's too many Milan players or too many Juve players. It's losing its luster, okay? And that's kind of a, something happened with globalization there. Something's happening where it's the World Cup is less important than it used to be. And is that because is that also something about the nature of Italy itself? As you say, localism is uh, has been on the rise for maybe two decades. Can you just flesh that? What actually does that mean in, in Italian kind of everyday life and in Italian politics? So from the late 80s, early 90s, uh, separatist movements start to grow, particularly in the north. Not happy with the centralisation of the state, talking about a place called Padania, a separate nation with their own flag, their own army, their own language, their own symbols. Very powerful. I mean, these people are ministers. They take national power, not on their own, but powerful social movement probably the biggest social movement in Italy to emerge in the 90s and you know this feeds into football there are people at football who, who chant Garibaldi you're a disgrace you should never have formed Italy during a football chant uh, and a lot of this comes out as racism because Italy is a, is a country very much not at ease with itself in the in the late 90s 2000s it's um mass immigration has started for the first time there are four to five million foreigners arriving and italy doesn't know how to deal with this multicultural society it has doesn't have the tools doesn't have the language and this also you see this being transmitted into everyday racism on the terraces and and that's still going on today. So since 2006, it's almost like, as you say, that was a blip in a kind of longer period of decline. And I mean, if we look at the kind of the numbers of people attending football in Italy, success of Italian teams in European competition, the national team itself, all the indicators suggest 
both absolute decline and, of course, my shockingly relative decline. I mean, who would have believed that, you know, Huddersfield versus Crystal Palace would pull more global viewers than Inter versus Milan? But I would say that's probably where we are today. Where... Where did that come from? Is that merely just others accelerating past them or is there a structural and secular decline within Italian football over the last couple of decades? So like Italian society, like Italian politics, the, the people at the top generally haven't got there because they're good at anything. They've generally got there because someone has said, you can have that job or patronage or clientelism. So the people at the top running the game, not necessarily the presidents of the clubs, but the people running the football association, the game, are generally people who are incompetent. And not just incompetent, they're usually quite corrupt. So that that has fed down into a lack of renewal, not just in Italian football, but in Italian society. So to build a new stadium in Italy is an extremely difficult thing. Because... Uh, because planning regulations, local politics, the stadiums are often owned by councils who don't want to give up that that patronage. The rental that they're getting off Yeah, of. and the visibility and the, and the power that that provides power. It doesn't provide money, but it provides power. And what a problem, what's the problem with the stadiums that they've got? Most of them are old, crumbling, dangerous, uh, uncomfortable, um, you know, don't have very nice toilets. You know, it's not a nice experience. I mean, you might... As old nostalgic football fans, as I'm sure you are, as, as you probably quite like going to these stadiums. But the sort of new generation, the premiership generation, doesn't really like going to those stadiums where they might get hit on the head by a policeman, which they're not used to happening or hit for by no a reason. Flare from the ultras, hit by a who flare. of course still do like the crumbling stadiums. Well, the What's ultras going are the on only with ones. those guys? The ultra are kind of very much still around and in some ways they're the only people really going to the games and their kind of mantra is we are against modern football which translated into their the way they understand themselves is we still want our power base and their power base is the kurva the part of the stadium they control where they can do whatever they want and transmit messages in a kind of narcissistic way it's all about them so they're still very powerful. They are a powerful social movement in Italian society. They have extreme visibility. Their messages get sent to the front pages of the press. The fans have said, they're not, they're not the fans, they're a tiny part of the fans, but the fans have said this, the fans have said that, the fans don't want this player, the fans don't want this manager. Um, and nobody has managed to shift them, partly because they've, they threaten the people who want to shift them with violence, and partly because nobody has the political will to deal with that issue there's been no Hillsborough as well you know Hillsborough is obviously the turning point in in British football because it it transforms the system and the premiership kind of comes on the back of that transformation there isn't that there's nothing like that and I don't want there to be that but you know sometimes it takes something like that to overturn a structural uh, situation and I mean, of course, they they threaten violence, they have interest, but how can it be that, you know, clear, regular, decade-long flouting of the rule of law continues to be possible? How does that work in Italy? It, it is extraordinary when you think about it. I'll give you an example. Uh, Roma Stadium, the Roma Ultra, a very powerful ultra group, very powerful. They control the enormous curva. And um, the, the authorities tried to put some barriers in between the fans... The fans went on strike, not for one week, not for two weeks, for a year. 
the ultra didn't go to the games we don't want barriers because the barriers they saw that as the thin end of the wedge and they were probably white right you don't touch our curva they won they took the barriers out i mean that that their power is they have complete control over that over the the presidents and no presidents ever taken them on and a president who has taken them on has ended up with a police guard so we're talking about a powerful force and uh, it, it needs a structural set of reforms to get rid of it which not sounds tinkering. rather like italy as a whole exactly and is there any is there any sense that an event as dramatic as not qualifying for the 2018 world cup could trigger a similar kind of debate beyond the kind of the wailing and the gnashing of teeth i don't think so i'm afraid not and also i just i come back to my point about my theory i don't have massive evidence for it but I'm, i think it's building is that the national team is as a mobilizing force is in decline so the recent non-qualification there was a kind of ritualistic front page apocalypse headline a couple of people were sacked or resigned but it's you know it's gone no one's talking about it i mean it'd be interesting when the actual world cup starts what do italians do they'll turn on their tennis oh we aren't there and there may be you know a kind of identity crisis there one last thought one way of thinking about the course of Italian football over the last 30 or 40 years is that in the 1980s, the 1990s, um, Italy was in many ways well equipped both domestically but also in how it handled globalisation to produce a successful uh, Serie A and a successful national team and a vibrant football culture. Um, it seems that 20 years later, Italy is not dealing with globalisation very effectively, both you know in its wider economy, surviving uh, under competitive pressures, but above all, in not making a positive out of the extraordinary levels of migration that have uh, happened that you know I mean if you look at England's under 17 and under 20 World Cup winning teams uh, particularly the under 17s you know this is a very mixed race team this is modern England this is modern multicultural England you don't see that in Italy and I wonder why is that and is there any chance of that being turned around it's been very difficult for the black players in Italy then even those born in Italy to to be accepted as black Italians and it's still a um, there's a huge barrier to that and, and a player like Mario Balotelli who became a star with Inter at the age of 16 born in Palermo to Ghanaian parents adopted by white Italians who grew up as an Italian I mean as, as a very strong Brescian dialect accent you know um, for him he, he met with the most incredible levels of racism in the stadiums but also at the level of the press when he scored he scored the winner in the semi-final of the Euros for Italy against Germany uh, in 2012 and uh, the Gazette of the Sport reacted by by printing a cartoon of him depicted as King Kong which they claim was not racist so the, the barriers he has had to go through um, have been extraordinary and he's in many ways a pioneer and I think that that lack it's going to take 20-30 years for that to work its way through um, there are a lot of good black and immigrant um, players who have come through the system but they're they're powerless uh, and that's true of the five and where million. are their tribunes inside Italian football I mean if they are powerless where where are the allies where are the supporters where are the white players and managers and coaches speaking out for something different nowhere I mean it's 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 very depressing from that point of view 
there's a lot of lip service paid to yes so we've got to do something about this terrible problem of racism i mean the racism in the stadiums is, is a, literally a problem of 30 years that has not been you know it has been you know kick the people out of the stadiums but this comes back to the question of the ultras that i said before nobody is going to go into the corva and pick out someone who's being racist when 20,000 people are being racist and so it's it's at that level of decision making and you get an absolutely bizarre system of fines and say oh one part of the statement is racist another part wasn't so we'll just give them a small fine and we won't top you know nobody knows what to do about it nobody has the political will to do anything about it and the black people and immigrant people in Italy have no voice so once again Italy is in a kind of strange socio-cultural stalemate is there anything you can see on the horizon either in football or indeed in Italian society more widely that might begin to break it well one of the outcomes of decline is that there are lots of good young players still coming through the system and that didn't really demonstrate itself in the qualification period because of the dreadful manager but um you know if you don't have all the best players coming to play in your league then your players will get space and there is true and in terms of the coaching excellence and the technical excellence they're still up there with the best but otherwise there's a lot of foreign money coming in and we haven't talked about that and that is not really being digested Milan is owned by the Chinese Inter is owned by the Koreans is it um, Indonesians? Indonesians an Indonesian right. guy and part by the Chinese as well Roma by the American Fenway group and that really hasn't that cultural change hasn't really been transmitted so Rome are trying to build a new stadium in Rome which is not an easy place to build a stadium if they manage to do that that will almost be a revolution so let's see if these foreign owners can actually change things i mean i find it very difficult to envisage but you know that, that money is there although in the case of milan we don't know if it is exactly there <laughs> <laughs> why where where do we think it might well, there be? are strong doubts that the the purchase of milan um the money that was promised is not actually money well, that I wouldn't don't want be, to be. That I don't want the lawyers to come and get that me. That wouldn't be allegedly. the first club to be bought on that basis. And with that essential truism of modern football, it just remains to say, John Foote, thank you very much for being with us. Good to see you. Seriously, let's do this during the World yeah, Cup. Yeah, whenever you want. Maybe we can kind of pretend Italy are playing. <laughs> Some sort of bizarre surreal. Now, there is an alternative World Cup. <laughs> yeah. John Foot. Italy won't be at the World Cup, but we will be. We're taking a little break right now to gear up, but we will be back before the tournament kicks off in Russia this June with Season 2 of Game of Our Lives. In the meantime, catch up on Season 1 if you missed anything. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Reddit. Enjoy bonus clips from the show, World Cup highlights and some of our all-time favourite goals. Now, we talked a lot about favourite goals on the show and we'd like to hear about yours. So, send us a little voice message on 707-794-2817. That's 707-794-2817. And if you're not in the United States, just add us as a contact on WhatsApp and send us a voice recording at the same number. But it's plus one seven oh seven seven nine four two eight one seven. So yeah, tell us about your favourite goal. And while you're about it, tell us about your favourite foul, your favourite dive, your favourite act of corruption in global football. We would like to hear them all. Okay, here we go. 
This show is a production of Jetty Studios. Our senior producer is the lovely Raja Shah. Our producer and sound designer is the miraculous Meredith Hodinot. Our editors are the hard-working and fastidious Casey Miner and Kanish Thoreau. Kiana Mogadem does social media. Graylin Brashear does audience development. Graphic design is from Sophie Feller. And podcast operations are from Jordan Bailey. Game of Our Lives is recorded at the Soundtown Studios in Bristol, UK, with engineering by Richard de Mowbray. Music is by Bang Dada. You can hear more from them at bangdada.com. Our executive producer is Julie Kane. Our general manager is Kazar Kantwala. I'm David Goldblatt. And we'll see you next season.